Go ahead and grab a Bible and flip to Psalm chapter 1. We are going to be looking at the Psalms And tonight we're going to start with the very first psalm, talking about the well-ordered life, the well-ordered life. Let's go ahead and read that and then I'll pray. Psalm chapter 1, these are the words of God. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not rise in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Our Father and gracious God, we've gathered here today as your assembly, asking and praying for your spirit to guide us and to shape us. We have a great need these days because the disorder of our culture is becoming more and more apparent, and in many ways it's becoming more and more discouraging. Father, I ask that you would keep us from evil and temptation and deliver us from any shred of unbelief. We desire to do your will, and this is in spite of the myriad who have chosen otherwise. Grant us wisdom and grace in the days ahead. Help us to trust you and believe upon your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, I'm excited about this next series as we spend the next several weeks looking at the Psalms. I've done some version of a summer in the Psalms before, and thanks to my wife's recommendation, we're back at it again. And no, we're not going through all 150 Psalms in the next 10 years. So uh, I know there's a collective sigh there. You were disappointed. But right now the plan is to take the next eight-ish weeks and pick out some of my favorites. And there are different types of Psalms that of course reflect the various genres that are contained within the Psalter, uh, royal psalms, messianic psalms, imprecatory psalms, wisdom, lamentation, uh, creation psalms, there's uh, liturgical psalms, thanksgiving, enthronement, and so on. There's all these different types of psalms and songs in the book. But before we dig into Psalm 1 specifically, I want to give you at least a brief overview of the Psalter itself to help you get a, get a grip on what, it, what we're dealing with. Now, the Psalter, which is just calling it the Psalter, is just another way of calling the collection of books known as the book of Psalms. But the Psalter is really a microcosm of the Bible, meaning that the entire collection deals with everything the rest of the Bible deals with. So couched within this stylized poetry of Hebrew music and Hebrew chanting, the Psalter often revisits all of the major themes of the Bible, whether that's the creation story, uh, the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, and then redemption of God. Uh, It could be a psalm that speaks like Psalm 8. We'll probably look at that one. I like that one a lot. But the importance of man as God's image bearer, and why man has value, and so on. Or the history of Israel and her struggle with sin and unrighteousness and struggle with obedience. The psalms will deal with all of those things 
uh, as well. It could be also the sanctions that we find within the law books, what God does to a disobedient people. So all of those themes show up in one fashion or another throughout the book of Psalms. Uh, The characteristics of the books of Moses, the writings, the prophets, all of them are encapsulated within the Psalms in one fashion or another. The Psalter is essentially the rest of the Bible put to music and poetry. Further, the Psalms are an invitation for man to join in somber yet joyful participation with the triune God and his impervious perspective on reality. So in this case, man has two options here in Psalm 1. You have two options right from the very beginning. Walk in the way of sin or walk in the way of wisdom. And that's why Psalm 1 is considered an introduction to the book of Psalms as well. And by the way, Psalm 1 and 2, we'll probably do Psalm 2 next week, but Psalm 1 and 2 are actually uh, belong together. If you look at verse 1, the very first word, how blessed, ashre in Hebrew, blessed. But if you go to Psalm 2, Psalm 2 actually ends with how blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the, the word blessed kind of is like a bookend. Psalm 1 and 2 go together. Now, in this case, we're we're confronted at the very beginning here with this reality. We either walk with God, and thus we walk in the light, or we walk with sin, and we walk in the darkness. So to do the former is life, to do the latter is death. And the Psalter invites us to see with God's eyes, as hard as that can be, we're supposed to look at the world through the eyes of God as best we can. We're supposed to feel what God feels while God remains impassable, the doctrine of impassibility. And then also we are to do what God does, though we also know that obviously that is done within certain limitations. Uh, Children, not to discourage you, but you can't do everything God does. Uh, You're not all-knowing and you can't be present everywhere, uh, even though our status government wants to be that way. Now in reading and praying and singing and chanting the Psalms, we are not, like the ancient Greeks, trying to ascend to God or ascend to some platonic ideal of God. Rather, we are celebrating God's covenantal descent to his people, God who's come to us, the very people who wish to do his will. So the Psalter challenges our spiritual orientation, it revives our spirits, it warms our faith, and it invites us to complete wholehearted devotion to the great I Am. That's what the Psalms is meant to do in your life. Uh, I think I've shared this before, but uh, usually in the months of January and February, I will start, try to start the year reading five psalms a day and one proverb a day. And you can do that in 30 days. And it probably could be d- done every month, but sometimes you, you, know, you like to mix it up with your Bible reading. But you can. You can take five psalms and read it in one day. Take one proverb. Kids, you know, you're, you're re- getting, as you're learning to read, especially older ones, you're reading. Uh, you could do that. Just mark it off, one proverb a day, five psalms a day, and you can read both books in, a, in one month. Now, the psalms stand over the darkness of sin and rebellion that enshrouds mankind and loudly proclaims that the antithesis of humanism and autonomy can only be rectified with the eternal praise of God. This, the sin we see in the world, this high-handed rebellion, especially in the month of June, it seems to be more potent, more and more every year it seems to be getting that way, Uh, But this high-handed rebellion can only be corrected with the eternal praise of God. And that's what the Psalms, that's what they do. They stand over this rebellion and say, sing to the the eternal praises of God, and that's how you're healed. 
So we are mortals and God is eternal. That is, that's the only meaningful perspective on reality. Uh, any man who has attempted to sin has always done so with this idea that he could be the eternal one. The Psalms say, no, that's not the case. In fact, the Psalms tell us that when you lose that standpoint, when you lose that perspective on your life, one loses himself. God is holy, and he dwells in unapproachable light, Paul says. Without God, man is left without a word. So the book of Psalms takes the incomprehensible nature of language that is apart from God, and it puts a glorious utterance on our tongues so that we may glorify the ineffable one. The Psalter is often called a prayer book. It is a prayer book of Israel, and because of that, it's actually a songbook of Christ. The Psalter invites us to pray knowing that the answer is always Jesus. Hence, the Psalms are songs about Jesus, the Son of God, the true man, the God-man, and we glorify God because of it. Now, here's the thing. I'm not, I understand how this works. <laughs> you may not always feel like singing or praying, right? I mean, think about it. If we, just, if we just did the singing and praying whenever we felt like it, it probably wouldn't happen that much. You may not always feel like singing or praying, but when the mind is captured by the truth of God and when the heart is captured by the love of God, the mouth can't help but burst out in song. And that's what creation does, of course, each and every sunrise. So, welcome to the Psalter. Let's look at Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is the preamble. It's the preamble that deals with the sociology of man. Who is man in this world? And the only way for man to view the world is through the eyes of obedience. If you want to see the world the way God sees the world, the way it really is, then it has to be seen through the eyes of obedience. One may try to reflect upon the created order apart from God. However, what happens when you do that is his anchor is himself and not the Lord of glory. So Psalm 1 says, you want to view the world, you have to view it through the eyes of obedience. Sin itself, by definition, is missing the mark. Therefore, to miss the mark of God in our obedience is to fail to understand the world appropriately. So man in rebellion against God does not see the world properly. Uh, as Augustine said, there is hardly anyone who is free of the love of wielding power or does not long for human glory. He's right. Look at verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Twenty-six times in the Psalter, the word blessed is used. Ashrei. Jesus says the same thing to us in the Sermon on the Mount. There is blessing, there is fortune, there is happiness, there is joy, there is peace, there is grace, there is mercy when certain conditions are met. Here at the very start of the largest book of the Bible, we find that man is blessed when he does not do certain things. It's kind of a funny way to start off in the negative function of, of God's law word. There's a blessing involved in you not doing certain things. So right from the get-go, we have this renunciation of sinners. Simply put, it is rewarding for people to live as the Creator has intended. You think about evangelizing, especially during this arrogant month, we can call it, high-handed arrogant month. You think of evangelizing in, in this regard. Um, part of that message is it's, it's a reward to live as the way God has created the world and created you to live. There's reward in that. There's blessing in that. 
you're trying to chase down blessings at the, at the wrong end of this. <laughs> you have to come to Christ first. That is where the reward is. You're not living the way the Creator has intended. So we want to communicate that covenant fidelity is a tremendous blessing. There's a tremendous blessing to our faithfulness to God and His Word as revealed. So life itself is never to be self-directed or self-determined. That is never the case. That's the opposite of covenant faithfulness. There are two words used that are in Hebrew to describe this idea of blessing. And one of them I already mentioned, the very word used here, ashray, which is used, it talks of, essentially its defi- definition is this status that's to be envied by the unfaithful. It's a status of blessing that you have. Um, Baruch is another word for blessing, which confers blessing to the recipient. But in this case, it's a different word that's used. Here, we're talking about a model of covenant faithfulness and blessing. Uh, Think of it as in terms of reward and and positive sanction in your life because of your, your obedience. Some translations will say happy, and that's not really the best translation because well, even a suffering saint, someone who's gone through a lot, a suffering saint can experience this blessedness. We might even say uh, covenantally fortunate is the man would be another way to maybe say this verse one. Now the wicked, they shove their way through life, scoffing and bludgeoning everyone around them. They are in scripture called sinners. And these sinners, and it means that they are repeat offenders. They're constantly violating God and His Word. They go on from bad to worse, this, this, this uh, invariant pattern of de- declension and moral decay, just one thing after the other. Mockers and scoffers, they are proud, they are haughty, they are foolish. They sneer at goodness and beauty in the world. They want to malign it. They want to take like a beautiful piece of art and they want to just dump everything they can on it to make it worse. That's what sinners do. They're not content with righteousness. They want, to, they want their filth to be paraded in the streets. Right? They, they, it was never about accepting same-sex mirage. It was always, you must celebrate it or you will perish. So that, that's what people are driven to do. So in, in God's community, though, Proverbs 22.10 says they're to be driven out. We're supposed to dr- drive out the evildoer. That's why the church has the power of excommunication. And that's why the civil magistrate should have the power of punishing evil. So in all of our realms of thinking, all of our behaving and our belonging, man is to avoid departing from God. That's the way of wickedness. Wickedness is a departure from God. And the present issue is about walking. Which way will we go? How will we order our lives? How will you order your life? Don't look at the wrong path. Don't step on the wrong path. Don't be enticed by the wrong path. This is what verse 1 is telling us. Joy and fortune starts with the negative. Joy and fortune starts with the negative. Don't do this and such. Note that there's a regression here. Sort of a disintegration, Van Til called it. A disintegration into the void. There's a, a regression. The blessed man does not walk in the advice or counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand. We go from walking to standing. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners, nor does he sit with the scofflaws who have made themselves teachers. And in the ancient world, the teachers would sit. Everybody else would stand. Now it's the opposite. <laughs> but that's what they, they have made themselves teachers. Walking, 
They go from walking to standing to sitting. It's a regression, a disintegration into idle living and fruitlessness. Look at verse 2. However, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and in his law he meditates day and night. Instead of doing those things, the blessed man, the covenantally faithful, fortunate man, think of Job and his, that story as well, but he meditates on the law of God. She meditates on the law of God. Self-directed lives are fruitless lives. There is blessing, however, in going another way. Faithfulness only comes about by abiding and delighting in Torah. Torah, by definition, is law instruction. It is life path. It is teaching. Uh, evil men, they fold in on themselves, becoming idle, becoming impotent. Uh, faithful men have a delight that transcends the created order, and for this reason, joy is never circumstantial. I mean, think about it. If joy is circumstantial, you are in a heap of trouble. What, what happens when something bad, what happens when something terrible happens to you in your life, and you're not rooted and grounded? Do you, can you see past the death? Can you see past the, the difficulty in your marriage? Can you see past the frustration in your, your job or whatever? Can you see past it and see that joy is not conditional on this thing? It transcends this thing. So the faithful man, his life is not entirely circumstantial. Evil men, they spiral downward. Faithful men ascend to glory as Jesus comes and brings us to glory. Now in verse 2 here, the word meditate, it's a verb. And it's a verb for cooing or growling or muttering. And Christian meditation requires verbal repetition of God's instructional law word. So we don't, this is the thing, this is why we have to be careful in, in some modern pop psychology situations. We do not empty our minds like the Eastern gurus and mystics. That's not the task of Christian meditation. Christian meditation is not emptying your mind. It's actually filling your mind with scripture and then rehearsing it on your lips. So, Quite literally, meditation in this language, in this uh, in the Hebrew connotation, means to mutter, to almost speak, even like underneath your breath. You are muttering, you're cooing, you're you're uh, you're verbalizing God's word. So perhaps I don't know if you've ever done this. Uh, certainly, this was the uh, Ethiopian eunuch situation when he was reading Isaiah out loud, and Philip was there. And but that was a tradition. That's how you read Scripture. You read it out loud. So I don't know if. If you have ever done that, it's, it's a fascinating exercise to pause, read your Bible, and say it out loud. Uh, you, you could, of course, listen to it as well, but part of meditation, at least as this psalm tells us, to meditate on God's law is to quite literally re repeat it. You may even sing it. Uh, so we, we like to think of private devotional time as being that time when I just lock myself in a room and I'm just quiet and I'm emptying my mind because everybody's stressing me out today. No, it's not. It's actually verbalizing it. So maybe read your Bibles like the ancients and read it out loud, and that's the way to, to go. We're also reminded of Joshua 1.8. Joshua 1.8 says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate upon it day and night, so that you may be careful to do all that is written in it. And then he says, For then you'll make your way successful, and then you will be prosperous. So his delights in the law of Yahweh, and on his law he meditates day and night. Look at verse 3. 
And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. So we're talking in verse 3 about fruitfulness in life. Faithful men, we are told, are like trees, but they're not just any type of tree. They're trees that are situated by water. They're rooted, they are grounded, they are nourished, and they are supplied by this stream of water. But again, it's not just any old regular water here. It's biblical instructional law water. As a result of this rootedness, being near that water, that spring of water, they bear fruit. So rather than withering like the scoffers, they prosper. They're, they have abundant fruit in their lives. The only way to prosper, indeed the only way to see a deep and abiding joy in the Lord in your life, is by being rooted and grounded, nourished and supplied by God's law word. No one is grounded by incoherent nonverbal religion. You're not grounded if, if you're just you're, you're into the whole Oprah-anity thing. You're not grounded if you think the task, like the Eastern mysticists who think, well, you just you got to experience nirvana, so don't say anything and don't write anything down and just sit and lock yourself in your room and empty your mind for the next 12 decades. <laughs> Just be quiet, and then that's it. No, one's in, no one is grounded in truth with that sort of incoherency. Verse 4. The wicked are not so. They're not like the tree by the water. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff, which the wind drives away, meaning that sinners do not bear fruit. Wicked men are not like trees. They're like chaff, driven away by the wind. They are ephemeral. They are unproductive. They are sterile. They're incohate. They're, they're you know, squishy. <laughs> That's the type of man who is a sinner. During, during harvest time, the grain was threshed and tossed up into the air. Especially you would do this sometimes on a higher uh, hillside or somewhere where there's a wind, there's a breeze. And the outer husk, the chaff, that would blow away and the grain would fall to the ground. That was the threshing floor. That's how you harvested wheat and such. That's what the word picture here is all about. Windblown trees that are healthy, they don't get discarded and toppled. They stand strong because they're nourished. Being grounded and healthy, they can withstand anything. I mean, I've, I've, <laughs> Mary and I, we've walked through some, some, some wild stuff in our years. Um, just murder and all these things that have gone on with people and probably some of the most darkest stuff we've ever had to walk through people with. And, and you can kind of tell who's grounded and who's not in those situations. You really know when the wind comes and you know if someone's, if their faith is real and it's mature and it's grounded and their theology is squared away so they understand the sovereignty of God and all these things, you know you can tell very quickly if that person has been in the Word, if they've really been grounded, if they've been that tree that's by the water, or you can tell if they're like chaff and the wind blows them to, to and from, and they, you know, uh, <laughs> you can tell in those situations. Usually it's the tough times that reveals to us what in the world we have going on really in here. But the wicked are not like that. They can't even stand the lightest of breezes. They're just tossed up in the air, and they're like the chaff. They, they're gone, taken with the wind. They're, they're fit only for a drought. There's no streams of water here. It's just a drought. The, the character of the wicked is worthless and shallow. Look at verse 5. 
Therefore, the wicked, because of this, because they're like chaff that the wind drives away, the wicked will not rise in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So sinners are without judgment. Let me explain that. The wicked do not rise in the judgment, it says, nor can they stand in the congregation of the righteous. The wicked man has no place in the assembly of the righteous. So people who aren't Christians, they're unregenerate, in fact, they're in high-handed rebellion against God, would come in to a place like this, and it, this would be a foreign language to them. It's entirely a foreign language. That's why I think preaching the gospel to people is more, is more than just, you're going to hell if you don't repent. That's foreign language. We, we have to be a little bit more wiser than, than just that. And also the other opposite is don't just tell everybody that God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life. Because <laughs> hell is real and judgment is real. But, so we have to be a little more winsome. But all of this is a foreign language to them. They, there's no, it doesn't make sense to them in the, in the assembly of the righteous. None of this makes sense. So in the Old Testament times, when the righteous community would make their judgments, you went to the city gates and the elders were there. They were the theocratic judiciary that executed punishment. The witnesses were called forth and you were put on trial in the city gates. That was the assembly. That's where you went for justice. You would bring your case and it would be heard and the wise men who were anointed with the spirit would discern and they would execute the judgment. That's that righteous assembly. And they would judge, of course, according to the word of God. But the wicked are nowhere to be found in this situation. They're not coming to be, get justice. They don't care. They only care about injustice. They're blown away. They're unable to stand in their own defense. Um, Paul uses this language in Romans chapter 1. They are without defense, without excuse. That's what he means here, the writer in Psalm chapter 1, verse 5. They will not rise in the judgment, meaning they can't even have a defense before the throne of God, the inexorable down, downfall of the way of the wicked is the result of choosing, choosing what sort of characters that they want to be. So sin leaves you without legs in the judgment of God, right? No leg to stand on, no place to lay one's weary head. Immorality, wickedness, scofflawing, all of these things leaves you defenseless before the throne of God. That's verse 5. Look at verse 6. 4. Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Yahweh knows. Yahweh knows. God must first know us before we're capable of knowing anything. God knows the path. He has designed it. He has created the way of righteousness. Therefore, the righteous who tread upon it are intimately known by God, and He carefully watches over them. The wicked, however... They disappear. It says that they perish here in the text. That to perish is to bring your life to nothing. To bring your life to nothing. To be unknown by God is to perish and fade. But to be known by God is the greatest of all blessings. It's the greatest of all blessings to be known by God. Kids, make sure you hear what I just said. It is a great blessing for you to be known by God. And you are known by God. You have been given the covenant. You've been given the riches of Christ. They are yours for the taking, and you must take them. And to remain known by God and to bear fruit, that is blessing. And what does Jesus say in Matthew 7, 23? He says, depart from me, I never knew you. We want to be known by God. Yahweh knows. See, the man who knows God knows himself. 
The man who knows God knows himself. The man who knows himself but does not know God does not ultimately know himself. Now, St. <clears throat> Augustine believed that this psalm was actually about Jesus, and I think he was right in making that observation. Jesus is the blessed man who did not walk, stand, stand or sit in the council or the way or the seat of sinners. He is the Lord man, Augustine calls him. The Lord man. Adam, we know, conspired with his wife, was beguiled by the serpent as a result, and ultimately broke the commandments of God. Jesus, we know, the second Adam, came to redeem his bride, to crush the serpent, and to keep every single one of God's commands. Indeed, Jesus is the only one to ever keep himself completely unstained by the counsel, way, and seat of the wicked. That's why we need him to be this Lord man. Admittedly, <laughs> admittedly, we are right in first seeing this passage through the eyes of Christ. We want to see this passage through the eyes of Jesus. For we cannot truly see it unless we have the righteousness of Christ granted to us. All of this, again, for the unregenerate is foreign language. If you don't know Jesus, you don't know Christ, you, your sins haven't been forgiven. If that's where you're at, you don't understand what this says. You have no comprehension. But Jesus has given us eyes to see. He's given us his righteousness to see the word. Now, only then are we able to follow the path, of course, that's, that's laid out here. And why? Well, because all of us are born in sin. We're on the wrong path. And it took the, it took the cross of Christ to forge a way through the thicket of man's sin in order to get us on the path of the righteous. None of us are on that path to start. We're on a different path, and Jesus takes the machete, cuts through the thicket. He brings us to that path by his grace, by faith. Are we now, after, the, after receiving the gospel, able to accomplish what Psalm 1 says we should accomplish? Yes. No one should leave thinking, all right, I've got to order my life. This is the way it's supposed to look. I need to be better about reading my Bible and praying and, and all of these things, and, and I'm going to do it in my own strength. That's the wrong thing to do. That's the wrong thing to do. The right thing to do is say, Jesus is the one who took this for me. He's the one that brought me to this path. I am now, by his grace, able to tread upon it as an undeserving sinner who's justified by faith alone. So it's only by the grace of God that I go. It's only by the grace of God that you go as well. Now, Psalm 1 is a great text in that it portrays to us the inevitable collision between these two worldviews, the two worldviews that marks all of history, belief and unbelief. Belief and unbelief. Now, note that there isn't any neutral territory here. There's no common ground. There's belief and un unbelief. And that's because belief and unbelief really don't have any common ground. The only commonality between the two is the lordship of Christ. One's the affirmation of the lordship of Christ. The other one is a denial of the lordship of Christ, which to deny it, you have to acknowledge it. So there's that whole thing. But the commonality is the lordship of Christ. Even unbelievers have to deal with the Lord man. To believe is to embrace and thus produce fruit in your life. Belief should produce fruit in your life. You should believe on the gospel. You should believe on the truths of the kingdom. Believe on the word of God. And that ought to then drive you to producing fruit because you're situated like a tree next to the stream. Now, unbelief, of course, those who are to, to be caught in this snare of unbelief is to reject and to fade away. So if you find yourself fading away, you may be 
not connected to the stream you're supposed to be connected to. And the center is always Christ. And what we must do is see to it that we ourselves are building our lives on correct presuppositions. So everything that comes after Psalm 1 through the rest of the book, which ends in this glorious praise of God, all the way through, everything that comes after is an experiential exercise in walking one of two ways. The ways of Yahweh or the ways of sin and death. And Scripture is replete with examples of both. It's replete with admonitions for both of those two. And what we don't want to do is pretend that there is no difference between the unbelieving worldview and our worldview of faith, and then, you know, we proceed to accept their tainted presuppositions, and as a result, we adopt their erroneous conclusions. Just, I'm saying that because that's what's happening in Christianity today. I always joke the the magazine or they call it Christianity Today. It's Christianity astray. (laughs) That's what's happening. So we don't want to adopt their presuppositions and then deploy those conclusions as if it's God's word when it's not. It's humanist-driven thinking. It's unbelief and so on. So that's what verse 1 warns against. Verse 1 makes sure that you see through the love is love charade. You, you need to be able to see through the love is love charade. It's all over the place, right? In this house, love is love and science is true. And da, 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 like, okay. <laughs> you, last time I checked, you can't define a word by its own word, you know. Love is love, but no. Paul says what love is. Love is law. We, we know that. But you have to be able to see through that charade. And generally speaking, I'm afraid that much of Christianity has fallen into disrepute because of this very trajectory of walking on a wrong path. So many Christians are functional dualists in their life. They believe one thing in their hearts, and usually it's only on Sundays, if that's even the case, while doing another thing with a whole other set of another assumptions in their heart the rest of their time, right? Jesus is Lord of my heart, but he's not Lord over Caesar, or worse yet, Jesus is Lord behind my eyes, but I wouldn't dare preach the gospel to the unbelieving world. Who am I to call them out on their sin? (laughs) Psalm 1 is a call to the well-ordered life. It's a call to the well-ordered life. You can line up all the sociologists, philosophers, psychologists, anthropologists. You can even throw in the general science guy, too. They, They just like looking at trees. None of them will get you what Psalm 1 teaches. They'll never get there. They'll never get there. They will tell you how to be happy. You know, you can be happy in your life. You know, just do you. (laughs) They'll tell you how to be happy. The modernists who love the freedom of self-discovery, and they will tell you how to find fulfillment in life through discovering that inner godness that's in you. Everybody's God. I mean, that's the stuff that people are buying like crazy right now. That's, that's what's out there. But they won't tell you what Psalm 1 tells you. Psalm 1, Psalm chapter 1 is a sociology, philosophy, psychology, anthropology, and theology rolled into just six verses. And it says more in six verses than all of the books of the Western world combined. <laughs> the secular, humanist Western world, I should say. And what does it tell us? Very simply, what is Psalm 1 about? Kids, listen, what is Psalm 1 about? It is this, what a man, what a woman, what a child has in his heart, her heart, is the thing that shapes and drives his or her life. I'll say it again. What you have going on in your heart is the thing that shapes and drives your life. That's Psalm 1. 
A man can say a whole lot and put on quite the oration for everyone, but his heart is what drives him, especially when no one is around watching, when no one sees what he's saying or doing. Verse 2 sums it up, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh. His delight is in the, in the law of Yahweh. The righteous man and the woman, thanks be to Jesus Christ, is not under the law as though he were enslaved to its demands and condemnation. Rather, he is in the law as a free man blessed by its governance. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Verse 2. If you like to underline your Bible, I suggest that part. And in his law, he meditates day and night. To be in the law is to be shielded from the harms of sin and unrighteousness. To be in the law is to be guided by delight and joy, only to be only found in, in the Lord. To be in the law is to be free from the slavery and tyranny of sin, which is what gives the law its power to condemn. To be in the law, again, not under, differentiating between those concepts. To be in the law is to be anchored and safe protected and sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. If you're in the law, by the way, if you're in Christ, you're in it. But if you're in the law, then act like you're in the law because you are, thanks be to God. The word meditate, uh, uh, I said this earlier, but the word meditate here means to coo or mutter or even chatter. You could even, you could even read verse 2. But In his law, he chatters day and night. Because the heart is the center of a man and not the mind like the post-enlightenments would have us believe. The heart is the center of man. The meditation that we're after is a delight in the heart that leads to a proclamation on the lips. If your lips aren't able to sing praises, whether that's bursting out in song or even praying, then you have a delight in the heart problem. <laughs> The whole of man is to be affected by the law. All of us. The, the, the majority of evangelicals today think the law has nothing to do with anything other than telling us what sin is. It has so much more application that, to that. The law is meant to be driven into your very being, in your heart. I mean, the Holy Spirit wrote it there during regeneration. He wrote it. He was penning it right on your heart so that you would then delight in it. So the whole of man is to be affected. I was studying this week and I, this question hit me because I realized this can be a complicated to some degree, but this question sort of struck me. And I was thinking, what is it about the law that we're supposed to take great pleasure in? Because usually when we think of the law, it's like thou shalt not murder, or, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery. We think of the Ten Commandments or maybe we think of the obscure laws about uh, you know, not putting cotton and polyester together, <laughs> which served a point for a time, which was abolished in Christ. But the law itself is, is bigger than just a civil application or a moral application or even a, a, a redemptive application. Ceremonial is sometimes called. But what is it about the law here that we're supposed to take great pleasure in and great delight in? What is it that should affect us? Where does the constancy and joy and fruitfulness of life come from exactly? Now, remember that the law is Torah, the Torah, and its basic meaning is, is instruction. So when you read law, sometimes we're just reading general you know, uh, instruction. 
statutes and things. You, you can read Psalm 119. We'll look at that in a few weeks. But Psalm 119, longest chapter in the Bible, but oftentimes statutes and precepts and principles, there's different nuances in those words. But the basic idea of law is instruction. It's instructions for your life. So when we say we're supposed to take great pleasure and delight in the law, we're saying that we should take great pleasure and delight in the instruction that God has given us about how to be a godly man, how to, how to raise godly kids, how to be a good wife, how to, how to do these things. The instruction is there for us. So we want to be good students in every area of life, right? Because all of life is religious and we want the claims of Christ to be applied everywhere. But studying God's Word should be a great pleasure for you. Is it a great pleasure for you? Do you delight in it? And if you're not sure, you have a delight problem already. And if it's been a month since you've even cracked it open, then now we have a different issue. You're not going to the source. You're not going to the delight. You're not going to the foundation. It should be a, a great pleasure for you. And if it's not, it's probably because you're leaning on your own understanding, which is the, ironically the very thing Proverbs 3 warns against. So if you struggle with delight and joy in your life, and you're just a miserable wretch all the time, you have a delight. You're probably not rooted in the Word of God. If, if people rarely see a smile on your face, you're probably not grounded by the streams of living water. You have pinched that hose so that it's not flowing anymore. <laughs> There's no more water coming out of that heart, which is the place the Holy Spirit has taken up residence to give you those streams of living water. If you're walking and standing and sitting in the way with a sinner, you're not a blessed man, no matter how many times you might think so. But taking pleasure in the Torah, the law of God, is taking pleasure in God's standards, in God's will, and God's law structures for the earth, for the creation. I mean, you look outside and you think of the beautiful weather, the, the wind blowing in the trees, the flowers, and, you know, I, I assume you're like me, you mow your lawn, and it's like, oh, that was great. Like, it's not when it's 95 degrees, but... You know, you finish mowing your lawn and it's like a sense of accomplishment. It's like, I've taken dominion with this zero turn, hallelujah. And, and it's a sense of like joy and peace because it, it smells great and it looks nice. And you, you, are, you are engaged in delighting in God's law <laughs> because he has given us a structure in this world and we should be happy with it. It's building the furniture according to the blueprints. Ikea style. The constancy, the joy, the fruitfulness of life comes from God our Creator, and the human search for God only comes from God. So taking great pleasure and delight in God's instruction is the source of all grace and all wisdom and all righteousness. So don't, don't neglect it. So if you're being blown around with panic and frantic living, here's a word for you. You're not rooted where you should be rooted. If you're bitter or stressed out or anxious, you're more like chaff than, than a tree. If, if you're more like chaff than a tree, then you need to seriously re-examine whether you're building your life on the rock that is Jesus Christ and His Word. Because if you're getting tossed about right now, you're not rooted. And rootedness is the issue. Are you grounded and nourished by the biblical world and life view contained in the Scriptures we just looked at the confession, the, the, the rule that God has given to direct us how we may glorify God and enjoy Him. If you're not, if you're not there, 
Are you tempted to pursue the temporal pleasures the world dangles in front of you for five minutes? See, your life, it's, if, it's not, if it's not nourished by the permanence of the Word of God, it will invariably lead to impermanence in your life, the idle sitting of the scoffers. To, to sit with the scoffer is to assume to lead people out of your own blindness. It's thinking that you have it all together and that God's Word cannot teach you a thing. And friends, the Bible warns against this. Jonathan Edwards once said that God created man for nothing else but happiness. And you have been created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's why you exist. And so don't lose sight of that. Don't be distracted. I get it. I mean, we live in the information age where the cell phone is, is at your fingertips. And man, you can get anything you want, anytime you want, which is dangerous. You're playing with fire. And you are created to glorify God. You are created for happiness. But stop dulling yourself with endless rounds of enter entertainment, which saps you dry of any spiritual en energy. Shut off Netflix in the evening. Go to bed early and get up ready to mutter the word of God, for crying out loud. Rather than dull yourself, let us go to the only fountain of grace and drink deeply by the stream of living water. So the Christian worldview presented here in Psalm 1 isn't something we just stare at and ponder from afar. Rather, it's the very thing we look through like a window in order to get to the root of a well-ordered life. So go to the Word, friends. Be nourished by the Christ you find therein. And trust the Holy Spirit is there to scrub you clean and present you anew once again. This, this is prosperity. Not the name it and claim it, blab it and grab it stuff. This is true prosperity. To be known by God and thus to know God. That is a prosperous man. How blessed is the man. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the preaching of your word would exalt you and encourage these saints. Father, I, I ask and pray that we would be known by you. And in fact, we are. We confess we are. We have what we need in Christ who has given us all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, who has given us the riches of, of grace. Father, we, we want to be rooted and grounded. We want to have lives that are well-ordered, that are not marked by chaos and unbelief, but are marked by consistency, service and love of one another. So would you help our ecclesia, our assembly, our church, God, to be who you've called us to be. And I pray that we would be in your word, Lord, that we would be fascinated by it, that we would desire more and more of it so that we can be rooted and grounded in you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.